0: verses 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another, to the unmarried and the widows. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Father, we love the whole counsel of your word. And even in this passage, Father, your truth rings out. Help us to understand this. Help me as I strive to speak the truth of what your word says and not my own. And let you be given the glory. And as your people, Father, may we grow from this and learn from this passage. May you guide us and strengthen us and give us a focus that only comes from you in your name, amen. You may be seated. So I had a conversation recently with someone about this passage who was uh, talking about, oh, hey, I see you have uh, this passage on Sunday. I said, yeah, it's pretty difficult. They said, yeah, well, you talked about church discipline. I said, I'd rather talk about church discipline. This is a hard passage, not because it's not understandable, but because, like, can we talk about this in church? The reality is, though, well, with everything that Paul's on, so he's talked about He's talked about difficult situations, right? He's talked about prostitution. He's talked about lawsuits between believers, false teachers, divisions, church discipline, all of those things. But today is more difficult again, not because it's hard to understand, but because the church at times is unwilling to speak it, especially from the pulpit, especially from the front. The topic is the Bible's view on sex and marriage, but that's not its main focus, So, can we all put mature pants on? (laughs) Kids, if you have questions, talk to your parents. Don't you like how that? Talk to them. Don't come to me, talk to them. You're welcome, parents. But it's not the main focus. The previous passage ended with a reminder to the church you were bought with a price, and so you are not your own worship and glorify God with your body we've been bought by Christ he willingly gave up his life upon the cross so that the debt for our sins would be fully paid he bought his people from the power of sin and eternal death and in doing so became their new master not a master that is cruel but one that is loving not one that's demeaning but is sanctifying It changes us, grows us more and more into the character of himself. And so the church is to glorify God in their bodies. Paul is giving the Corinthians some practical applications to a biblical truth. In short, the focus of the rest of 1 Corinthians revolves around what it looks like for the church to dedicate their lives to the spreading of the gospel message. Glorify God in in your bodies that's more than just physical although that's where he starts it's also a heart issue and and with our minds but today specifically he's mainly focusing on marriage but even if you are unmarried or widowed or you too young to marry which there are categories of all three of those in in this congregation if you find yourself in there, his in those categories, his words are still for you. Now you may one day be married, and you may need to know what a healthy, strong, godly marriage looks like. And healthy, faithful marriages within a church make a healthy, godly church. I say that again: healthy, faithful marriages make a healthy, faithful godly church to witness godly marriages can drive us to strive for godliness ourselves so even if you're a kid and you're like i'm 10 years old i ain't planning on getting married ever okay we'll get to that that's called a gift of god if that's truly what it is but you're 10 but you can still see the love and godliness and faithfulness of a husband and wife in your midst, whether it's your parents or someone else in the church, and you are blessed by that. And you can learn from that and from their mistakes. So what he's saying has practical meaning for everyone's faith in the church, just perhaps in different ways. And so don't be ashamed, don't be uncomfortable Because if we're unwilling to talk about sex and marriage in the church, then where are we going to hear it from? We're going to hear it from the world around us. And that's not, as a church, what we want for our people, whether you're married or not, you're widowed, you're single, or you're a kid. We want you to hear this. What does God's word have to say about this? And so we're going to dive in fights the temptation to sexual immorality. That's what he's been the last number of weeks have we looked at. Sexual immorality has kind of been at the center of it because that's the context of the Corinthian church, and they're finding themselves in a Roman culture which does not look at all, um, doesn't look all that well upon marriage in general, which that's our society today. Marriage does not look looked upon as this sacred union between, between a man and a woman. Marriage for the Roman culture definitely was not founded upon till death do we part. Now, according to theologian Brian Rosner, the Roman marriages started with the expectation that divorce was inevitable. It was going to happen. And should one or the other spouse feel that their sexual needs are not being met, it was acceptable for them to revert then to temple prostitution or to seek that out somewhere, that, somewhere else. That was just an expectation. And so Paul's words here are a call for the Corinthians to be countercultural. Be different from the Roman society around you. And of course, the application for us in the end is, we need to be different from the American culture and Western culture around us the Corinthians had written to get Paul's thoughts on if it was good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. Now, this is where commentaries can be really helpful because they aren't asking about marriage or about sexual relations in general. The literal meaning of Paul's opening verse and this, this phrase is, it, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, which is a euphemism or code for acting on sexual passions for the sake of pleasure or sexual release, including the specific cases of using people for one's own sexual gratification. That's from a commentary. That was not me. It was a commentary. In other words, it seems that some in the Corinthian church were holding to the idea that any form of sexual relations, even within the confines of a marriage, is wrong. This is like anything physical that gives us pleasure, we need to run from it because it is not godly. That is a wrong thinking, and Paul is wanting to correct them in that because though everything is lawful, not everything is helpful. We talked about that last week. But just because it's physical and it's appealing does not mean it is sinful. And so Paul, in response to their statement he begins with then addressing the exclusivity and mutual ownership between the husband and wife. Now, this is very countercultural to to how the Romans viewed these things. The sexual relationship is reserved for the husband and wife alone, Paul says. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, and each should seek to gratify the natural sexual desires of their spouse. Why? Why? Because neither has the authority over his or his or her own body, for it belongs to their spouse. They are one flesh, together—not just physically, emotionally, spiritually. They are one flesh, and so each rules, quote unquote, has authority over the spouse's body. This—I did a word study on the word authority like this. Okay, what does this mean? Because this is super controversial in our in our. Um, society today what does the bible mean by authority and almost actually i don't think i remember one time where it was not the authority of one like a governor or god himself having authority over creation or a governor over his people or a general over his his people or the disciples over the church or christ over the church it's that kind of authority and we we bristle against that because we're like oh ooh, that's that's not good But it does not, Paul does not mean this in a negative sense. He's pointing to the biblical truth that when a man and a woman come together in marriage, one must think of the needs and desires of the other. So do not deprive one another, he says. Do not seek sexual relations outside of your marriage. Do not use sex as a weapon against one another. Instead, fulfill one another's natural desires so that the temptation for sexual immorality is defeated and the spreading of the gospel message is not hindered with Christians acting no differently um, than the unbelieving world around them by going to temple prostitutes or getting divorced, which he's going to get to here in a second. So this is not about sexual relations, this is about where the heart is of the people and their witness to one another and their witness to an unbelieving world around them. Does, does that all make sense? We can get so caught up in authority and this and all, oh, I'm bristling against it. But what God is saying is there is a selflessness that happens in marriage. If you have one spouse or both spouses that are selfish, in any matter, it doesn't really work out, right? But if you have two spouses that are selfless and they are seeking to love and to care and to pour into and to meet the needs, whatever that may be, of their spouse and doing it without any, any hint of getting something in return, well we all get this, right? Have you ever had a friendship, friendship, where one says, give me, give me, give me, and is never willing to actually think of the other person? Have you ever had a friendship like that? It is exhausting and irritating, and you don't want to be around that person anymore, right? So we get that. That's how much more so in a marriage when you're with each other 24-7. And so in a marriage, in all things, there's this selflessness, there is this focusing on the needs of the other one, not, not to be seen as a wonderful person. I mean, hopefully that's there, and it, but it's, it's so that the witness of, and this is, he's assuming that they're believers, it's the witness of the couple of the gospel message is not hindered. Because there's nothing that hinders the gospel more in a marriage than couples who can't stand each other. These words are directed to both spouses, not one over the other. The temptation in the context is sexual immorality. So the temptation for sexual immorality is, is as great in the woman as it is in the man, though it may manifest itself in different ways. Both husbands and wives contend toward a lack of self-control and a healthy godly marriage is used by God to purge the desire towards sin in each person, allowing the gospel message to spread and the glory of God to reign in their bodies. My wife jokes when she says, I am your sanctification, Mark. Yes, you are. And I am yours. That's the point. That is not a bad thing. But it's a very countercultural idea. And then Paul writes about three gifts from God. And I, I love it that he uses that word because I think sometimes in, in the church in the past, at least from what I have heard, uh, people talk about singles like, oh, I'll be praying for your soul. Like, n- no, no. That's not how view, uh, Paul views singleness. He views singleness, widowhood, and marriage all as gifts from God. That's a, that's a good thing. These are good things that God uses to spread his gospel message. So first he addresses those who are unmarried or widowed. Again, he's assuming that they're believers. This is not a command from God that he's about to give. It's just his wisdom from Paul as an apostle. In other words, the Old Testament doesn't necessarily teach on this issue directly. This is Paul's personal advice. This is his authoritative advice as, as, an, as an apostle. It is good to remain single like him what he says. It's, it's really good to be single. He's going to expand on this later, and so we're not going to go into detail, uh, any more detail than to saying that to remain single or to be a widow is not a sin. In fact, it could be a huge positive for the work of the gospel unless they cannot exercise self-control. Now again, this lack of self-control points to a temptation to run towards sexual immorality not to flee from it remember he says flee from sexual immorality." He says that in the last chapter and in that case if you if you have no self-control it would be better for someone to marry than to burn with passion and to fall into actual sin this is not a verse speaking to an engaged couple who are struggling with the desire for one another well, we're getting married in six months. What's the big deal? That's not who he's talking to. This is a verse that is addressing the single or widow who is tempted to fulfill their sexual desires, both men and women, by the way, with a prostitute, as was common and acceptable in the Roman society. I have these natural desires. I'm not married, but I can go over here And fulfill those desires. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Do not do that. It is good to be single, but it is far better for them to be married instead of sinning against the Lord. And second, then he addresses believers who are married, husband and wife who are both Christians. But this time, he says it is a command from the Lord, not from Paul. The wife should not separate from her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Separation means to be married in law, but unmarried in practice, another common situation that was found in the Roman culture. They get married, things fall apart, well, we'll just separate and we'll go do our own thing. Almost like it's like a self-divorce that's not legal. The separation would free both of the spouses to pursue sexual immorality, presumably through prostitution, again, according to the context. But Christian spouses, though they should not separate— thus opening the door to sexual immorality. Instead, they need to work things out between them and reconcile with one, and one, with one another. Now, reconciliation. Reconciliation is when you have two parties, they're, they're at odds together, they're estranged, they're in dispute, they're angry with one another, they're dis- a major disagreement. And so reconciliation means to change or to exchange. It's changing the relationship or exchanging my anger for goodwill. My anger for friendship. Letting go of myself so that I can then have a good relationship, in this case, with my spouse. So when one is reconciled, the attitudes are transformed and the hostility between the people ceases. Seek reconciliation, he says. And with the Roman culture encouraging separation and divorce, married believers are to act differently. And then lastly, he addresses believers who are married to an unbeliever, or what the Bible would call unequally yoked. Whether the believer was saved while married to the unbeliever or before, and so then they got married to an unbeliever. Paul's advice, remember this is not a command from God, he says, is that the believer should not seek to divorce their spouse it's the gospel which makes such a uh, marriage so difficult the believer is striving to live for the lord while the unbeliever has no such desire and so it creates this dissonance major dissonance um and do do it do to explain dissonance that's a musical term okay so if you have um you have two notes and they're really loud and they're really close together, but they're not the same note, and it's like this wah, 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 wah in your ear. Does that make sense? You all look at me like I'm crazy. Come on, back me up, Aaron. Is that right? Okay, okay. So does that you ever heard that? You got two noises, and they're kind of pushing against each other, and it's this wah, wah, wah in your ear, that it hurts your ear. That's dissonance. There's something not right. They're not on the, the same note. They're not on the same level. They're fighting against each other. So when you have two people, and that they're fighting against each other and there's this dissonance like, wah, wah, and there's this fighting what reconciliation does is it brings them together because they let go of themselves they think of the other person and ultimately the glory of god they focus on him and not on themselves and when you have an unbeliever and a believer that dissonance doesn't change and so why stay in such a difficult marriage that doesn't change unless, unless the unbeliever is saved by God. Let's say it that way. So why, not, why, not, why stay in such a marriage? Well, because the unbelieving spouse, Paul says, is made holy by the believing spouse. Now, whew, okay, so we have, to, we have to wrestle with that. Should, should they divorce, Paul says, the children then would be unclean while staying in the marriage makes the children holy. Okay, so now the reality is, is that only God saves. Only God saves. I, I say, I have said this before, and I've talked to friends before, and I have heard it many, many times, that sometimes um, you have a, a believer, a young believer, who falls in love with uh, an unbeliever, and their goal is to, I'm going to change them. That's not what he's talking about, okay? That is, that is danger written all over it. That is danger written all over it. If you, you cannot be your future spouse's savior. There's only one who can save. His name is Jesus Christ. It's through faith, by grace, through faith in Christ alone. Okay, so that, that's the reality of scripture that's what god says throughout all of scripture i cannot save anyone and i cannot save myself so what does paul mean here then well he's addressing the experience of god's grace due to proximity or nearness to the church okay so let me use this illustration you have a husband and wife let's just leave the kids out of it for now you just got a husband and wife the husband, man, he loves pizza, he loves lasagna for his birthday, he, he loves donuts. he loves basically any unhealthy food that you can think of. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Now, you got the wife who loves salad and healthy food. I like salads, too, sometimes. As long as it's fruit and it has oreos in it so <laughs> you, you see you got two different people right one loves healthy food, working out all the time, you know, loves kale, like, I don't understand that. And then you got healthy, Katie doesn't like kale either anyway, so I just want to let her know that. She's like, you're, I'm putting her on a high pedestal. No, this is just an example, okay? That you got the, the guy who doesn't want to work out, loves his beer, loves his food, loves his fat, loves all his things, okay? Now, when they get married, guess what's going to happen? They're going to influence each other, right? And let's just focus on the healthy ones. So if you've got a, 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 somebody who loves healthy food, they're going to cook healthy food, which means the husband who loves unhealthy food is going to have to eat a salad whether he likes it or not. He's going to have, he's going to be influenced by the healthy food and by the, the healthy mindset of his wife. Does, does that make sense? I mean, we can all agree on that, Right? Now, it does happen the reverse way, but let's, let's stick with the positive, all right? Let's just do the positive way. Just by him being in proximity with somebody who loves to be healthy has benefits for him. Now, he may never work out at all, but just eating the salad 10 times more than he ever ate it, which was zero, <laughs> is going to have a benefit for him, Right? Well, an unbelieving spouse or child can experience the benefits of God's grace through the believing spouse, through their peace, their love, their joy that comes from the Spirit, even if dimly. But if a believer divorces their unbelieving spouse, the unbeliever is removed from from experiencing God's grace and the opportunity for the believer to live out the gospel message in the life of their unbelieving spouse or child is absolutely lost. Does that make sense? Just being in proximity of the church has a profound effect on people. And so if the the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay in the marriage, the believer needs to stay. But if the unbelieving spouse seeks a divorce, they say, I don't want nothing to do with this anymore. The believer is not enslaved. They are not bound to them any longer. The unbeliever has chosen for the grace of God to be removed from their lives, and the believer is free to marry. But if a believer says, I am done, and they leave, they are choosing to remove that person from experiencing the grace of God that's not loving and that's not peaceful now we're not talking abuse here okay we're not talking those those major issues that's that's a whole nother issue and he says paul says god has called you to peace and so how unpeace loving it would be to selfishly divorce an unbelieving spouse removing them from the little bit of the grace of god that they are now experiencing in the marriage how does the believer know that she won't save her husband or he, his wife? How do you not know if God will work in such a way through your gospel life that the truth of salvation through Christ alone will not finally take root in his or her own heart and will transform them into a new creation? This is a countercultural way of thinking and living and being in a marriage. you want to put it in its bare bones, okay? Marriage is not about you. As a husband, marriage is not about me having my desires fulfilled, whatever they may be. It's about me focusing on my wife. But even deeper, you go deeper, you know what it is? It is my relationship with God, that I humble myself before Him so that I might serve my wife and vice versa. Does that that make sense? This is what Paul's trying to, he's trying to get to the root of the issue. The issue is, the issue is not marriage and divorce. It's there. That's a symptom. Where is your heart? Where is your focus? Is it on I want my needs to, to, to be met, or I'm going to meet their needs, his or her needs, so that I can have my needs met. I want them to love me, or am I thinking, I want to show the gospel to my spouse, whether believer or unbeliever? I'm going to show my God, the gospel to my spouse. Or to use the words of Paul, I'm going to glorify God in my body. What does it mean to glorify God in your body? He says, here you go. Now he's going to get to widows and, and singles here in, in, in the coming, um, the coming uh, paragraphs. But the, the truth is the same. Whether you're single, whether you're widowed, whether you're married to a believer or an unbeliever, our lives as God's church are to be dedicated to the work of spreading the gospel message. And you can do that in your marriage. You can do that with your children if you have them. Godly, biblical marriages were selflessness in fulfilling the natural desires, sexual desires, and the needs of one another out of love, out of joy, out of humility, where there is a mutual ownership of one another, not as dictators, but as loving partners who are one, reveal the gospel message to one another and to those around you. And so, God is glorified. The church, I say, singles and widows who are able to live celibate lives, that means uh, lives that are devoted to Christ, not to seeking out um, uh, a marriage, to live uh, lives of perpetual virginity, if you want to say it that way. That's probably more too Catholic for some people, but I mean, that's basically what it is. That I'm not going to engage in sexual relations because I want to devote my life to the gospel. Singles and widows who are able to live celibate lives devoted to Christ reveals the gospel message to those around you too. Christians are to live their lives, to live their marriages in dedication to the work of spreading the gospel message. I'm going to say it a thousand times. And so we are to view and understand sexual desires through the lens of the gospel message that those desires are good, but all too often are corrupted by our lack of self-control towards sexual immorality. We have to face it. Marriage and sex are not meant simply to make children, but to sanctify one another, to selflessly strive to sharpen and grow one another into deeper faithfulness to God. So the church is to be countercultural in this. This is not easy. When I do premarital counseling, I I tell tell these couples, you think you know what you're getting into. (laughs) You don't have any clue. It'll be the hardest thing that you will do until you have children. But it is the best thing you will ever experience as a Christian if you are living dedicated to the gospel and to the glorification of God. Marriage is the hardest sanctifying thing that you will ever experience. But what's better than being sanctified to more and more in the character of God? Now I've you think you think like one year into your marriage, you're like, okay, I think we've got this. No, we don't. Katie and I have been married for 21 years, and we know, like, oh man, we ain't got this done. This is really hard. And you think, in my mind, I think by the time we get to 50, it's, it's going to be a breeze. And you talk to those who are almost at 50 or have been married 50, and they're like, yeah, no, it's still difficult. It is a lifelong process, it is not easy. But man, it is so good in the end. It is so good. The church is called to be countercultural. In this understanding of marriage and living and speaking a life for the gospel will be seen and heard by an unbelieving world. They they may not believe, that's not our job. Our job is not to save people, our job is to be faithful and to use God then to reveal his love, to reveal his grace through the gospel message to those around us. And he does that, he can do that through loving, godly, biblical marriages. So how do you not know whether God will save them through you? I struggled with, you go, okay, so where is communion in this? <laughs> right? And I actually talked to Katie, and I was like, yeah, well, pray for me. How am I going to transition to communion? And she looked at me like, are you dense? You were bought with a price to so glorify God with your body. And I'm like, yeah, I am dense. I didn't even see it. You were bought with a price. Christ willingly went to the cross to die for us. He willingly went to the cross to give of his own life. He humbled himself. He sacrificed himself so that we might know the gospel and be saved. Are we willing to do the same for others so that perhaps they might repent and believe through the power of God? Are we willing to be used by God to speak and spread the gospel message to our friends to our spouses to our children to our 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 co-workers family neighbors I mean we could just go on and on and on are we willing to do that because that's what Christ did for us and what he did was not easy like some people view that like oh well, Christ knew he was going to raise three, three days for afterwards, so he was, it was fine, not a big deal. Like, do you not know what he went through? I cry when I sprain my ankle for crying out loud. There's no way I could do what he did. Not just physically, but then taking the entire sin of all who will, who will believe in him upon himself so that he could pay the price for them. That's It's like ultimate separation from God. He did that willingly. Can we not do the same for those around us? That's a hard question to answer. Or maybe it's easy to answer and hard to live out. So are we willing to use even these these verses, which are difficult to read, but to look at it and say, God, I... I want to do this. I want to do this for my spouse. I want to do this for my children. I want to do this for my friends. I want to do this for my family and have my life be a beacon of the gospel message to those around me. And so as we come to the table, help us as his people. So if you're a believer, you're welcome to come. We have open community. You don't have to be a member of Elm Creek. When you take the cup and you take the bread, you come back to your seat. If you're not a believer, we ask that you refrain because we take this very seriously because this reminds us of Christ's willingness to die for us. Or are we willing to do the same for those around us? And so take the cup, take the bread, have sit at your seat, meditate on the word, meditate on the word of God and say, God, give me this strength. I want to do this or change my heart. God, I really don't want to do this, so change it so I want to. Give me the strength to let go of myself, to be selfless. All of those things, pour your heart heart out to God. Give it to Him, even as kids. Pour your heart out to God. And then as a church family, we'll come together saying together, thanks be to God. We were bought with a price. So now may we glorify Him with our bodies. So when you are ready, go ahead and make a line in the back. Grab the cup, the bread, have a seat, and then Again, together as a church family, we will take communion together and glorify him together. So come when you are ready.